Welcome to episode 40 of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. In this episode, our Princeton Podcast host, Mayor Mark Frieda, welcomed J. Robert Hillier, one of the leading and most highly respected architects in the United States, known for having built one of the largest and most successful architectural firms in the world. Robert Hillier, or Bob as he prefers, is the founder of Hillier Architecture and now principal at Studio Hillier here in Princeton. Bob has been on the core faculty of Princeton University's School of Architecture since 1992, where he teaches two graduate seminars and has served on the American Institute of Architects National Fellowship Jury and as chair of the selection committee for the Dean of Princeton's School of Architecture. In addition to describing several of Mr. Hillier's more than 4,000 architectural projects, many of which are here in Princeton, Bob discussed his business collaboration with his late wife, Barbara, and how, in May of 2019, the New Jersey Institute of Technology renamed its College of Architecture the J. Robert and Barbara A. Hillier College of Architecture and Design. Bob Hillier is certainly one of our community's most remarkable Princetonians. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, J. Robert Hillier, for episode 40 of the Princeton Podcast. Bob, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So Bob, let's talk about you a little bit first. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Princeton. I was born in Canada. We moved to Camden when my father got a job with RCA, and then we moved to Prince, the Princeton area, Cranberry, actually, and then in 50, 1950, we moved into Princeton, and I've basically been here ever since. <laughs> Just a little while. Yeah. So, Bob, what, what sparked your, uh, your interest in architecture? F- funny story. My, my mother has a, a head of paper that I'd written in the sixth grade about being an architect, but I, at that I was going to be a, a labor relations lawyer, and I came. I got into Princeton, and I came, um, and we had proms. And what we did is convert Dill and Jim into a fantasy land for a night. And the guy who was doing the freshman prom flunked, flunked out, and I was a class officer. And I said, "Okay, I'll pick up the dance decorations." And I did the dance decorations, and my grades started to go down. <clears throat> and so I, um, <laughs> I, um, I went to see my counselor, uh, Dr. Challoner, and uh, I told him, I said, I used to be a straight-A student, I'm, now I'm down in the low Bs and Cs. And he said, uh, and I said, I'm having so much fun doing the dance decorations and, um, and actually some play sets also from McCarter. And he said, go... Um, I said, I, I, I'd like to keep doing this kind of thing and yet have get my grades back up. He said, go talk to the people in the School of Architecture. And that was it. Huh. So sophomore year, I started the architectural program a year late and uh, went ahead and then I got a master's degree also from Princeton, full scholarship. And, um, and then I was a townie uh, and it's just been great. It's the greatest profession ever because every site is different, every client is different, every client's program is different, and that makes it uh, every project 
different and that makes it exciting as opposed to i did a house once for a guy who um, who did root canal work and his wife whispered to me he's having the best time designing this house and she said do you know what it's like to rub a little piece of metal in people's teeth for your whole career (laughs) and i thought that was just a great description of what you know some of the medical profession can be like yeah um so I want to acknowledge, you know, the recent passing of your wife, Barbara, who was extremely involved in your firm. So can you share some reflections on her contributions to your practice? Her contributions were huge. Um, she came to me right out of school as an interior designer. Uh, no experience, uh, but she had a psychology degree, which is important, and she had an art degree, and she was an artist. And so... Uh, we took her on a, as an interior designer, and she was our first interior designer, and she knew nothing about doing interior design. But she was very smart and went out and hired a bunch of 60-ish type interior designers who knew how to do projects. And then she went out and started selling her team. And the next thing we knew, the interior design part of the business was becoming huge. And then she said, I want to open an office in Philadelphia, And she went to Philadelphia and built that office up to 90 people doing architecture. All of this while she was not an architect. (laughs) And Pennsylvania had a very strange law where if you worked for an architect for 10 years, you could then go into a three-year intern program and you could take the exam. And so she ended up becoming an architect without any architectural training. mainly because she had the experience in the office and she could do the exam. I helped her with the site planning because she didn't, she wasn't, that wasn't her forte and it was mine. Um, I helped her study for the exam. So she became licensed and, but without any credentials. And the happy, second happiest day of her life was when she went to Princeton. We had a non-compete after we merged the firm and we had a non-compete and she got, went back to Princeton School of Architecture and got her master's degree. And she could have been the mother or the grandmother even of all of her classmates. (laughs) And um, it was just the happiest day of her life when she got that master's of architecture because now she had the academic credentials. Um, But she'd already been a licensed architect for 30 years at that point. (laughs) (laughs) What a great story. And what's interesting about her is she did two of the most important projects the firm ever did. One was the um, um, Las Colinas Convention Center in Irving, Texas. Spectacular project, which is, uh, rather than being a big flat box, like most convention centers, was a stacked set of boxes going 178 feet high into the air of the Texas sky, is the way she described it. And... uh, they, they just loved it, and that project is so successful, it's booked ahead for seven years. Wow. And the other one she did was for Becton Dickinson. She did a, a an employee services building on a sacred lawn in their corporate campus. And the lawn was so sacred that she proposed to build the building under the lawn. And it was it, it's won projects, uh, awards from all over the world. And so she did some really important work. Um, those are two of the most remarkable projects. Right. 
Well, it's great to share those with us, Bob. Great Thank contributions. You. Yeah. So, Bob, can you talk to us a little bit about design philosophy? What, 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 what does that mean? And do you have one? It, it, it just, there's, you know, there's, there's design philosophy and there's a design style. And my philosophy is that um, the buildings need to be good architecture and they don't need to all come out of the same mold. There are certain architects you can look at and say, mm -hmm. oh, that's an XYZ building yeah. or that's a Q building or whatever. Um, we believe in programming the client. Find, you program a computer to do a job, you have to program a building to do a job. And the way you do that is you talk to the client and get every detail of what their aspiration is and what their um, needs are and what their budget is. And our philosophy is to do a building that answers those needs. So it's a design philosophy, but it's heavily driven by what we call the deep dive of programming. So we spend a lot of time at the front end getting to know the client. And then we give the client three different concepts, each one, none of which is perfect, but each one of which is different. And the reason we do three is if you do one, it's pass-fail. Yeah. Let's get another architect. <laughs> if you do two, it's just a dumb choice. I yeah. like A or I like B. Yeah. With three, it becomes a real conversation. And in that conversation, you're going deeper into the client's mind to find out what really makes the right building for this client. And that's our philosophy. That's great. So, well, the next question, maybe I think you've already answered a little bit. Is there a process your firm uses in the approach to each project? So I don't know if there's more to add to that. but No, it's just that um, we, we take those three concepts with the client's comments, and that becomes the beginning of the schematic design. And the schematic design is the first hint of what the architecture is going to be. That's, that's the cool thing about it. Yeah. I mean, in, in the case of the... Um, Irving Convention Center, it was more expensive to stack a convention center with the longest escalator in the world um, like that. But um, the, 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 the people at Las Colinas said, uh, we'll just raise the hotel tax to pay for it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, all right, so let's spend a little more time on this one, which you've alluded to somewhat already. But what sets your designs apart from works? from work by other architects and, and their firms? Number one, every building's different. Yeah. And there's a whole set of what we call hidden clients on every project. And those are the site, uh, which has its own personality, uh, the culture, the context in which it's gonna be built, and um, of course the budget, and the economics, and um, and sometimes even the politics. All those things influence a design, and our attitude is you have to bring all of those things into balance. You can't build a, a wonderful building that's gonna go like blazes into, into marketing and be a huge success if the client can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So you've gotta balance that goal of being a huge success in marketing with this building, and yet, the building has to be affordable to support that business. So that's the kind of thing that we worry about. 
Right. So there's a lot of decisions being made between you and the client to get to that to get to those points. Exactly. We, we did the Princeton Public Library. The, you know, the big hue and cry then was, well, you had a little uh, one library branch working in the shopping center while we were building the new library. Um, but before that, they were saying, why don't you just build a new library out of town and we'll keep this one, the old library, which wasn't working very well, as a branch. Yeah. Well, we had to convince the whole town, talk about <laughs> politics, that keeping it downtown was the right thing. When we were hired, they had 750 patrons a day. And when we finished that building, they were up to 2,500 a day. That's the difference. And libraries are no longer warehouses for books. They are, in fact, community media centers. Right. And if you go into the library today, you'll find people at every one of those computers because a lot of them can't afford to have a computer. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing how the library, how well the design of the library has worked, but I do remember the, the debate in town between the shopping I'm center sure and downtown. Know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> hey, Bob, so how do you think architecture impacts everybody's daily life? You live in it. Yeah. Every place you go, you're in architecture. And it should be as delightful an experience to walk into any building, to walk into any room as you can make it. And that's one of our goals, is to have it be exciting. You'd be amazed the difference a high ceiling makes in a space. Um, we're used to living in eight-foot-high eight ceilings, yeah. but everybody's getting taller. But when you walk into a room with a 10-foot ceiling, it feels different. And when you walk into a room with a 12-foot ceiling, it feels even more different. Yeah. And those, those little things are at work on you all the time. Right. So I, I, would, I would suggest that there's probably a lot of architectural things, things isn't the right word, but architectural uh, style things that you input into any design that people may not even notice, but there's a feeling when you're in a space, maybe you don't know why it feels good. Yeah. But a good architect probably understands all of that. Well, it's, you know, the color of the space. The orientation of the room, does the sunlight ever get into it? Yeah. Th those kind of things. They've, you know, there are studies that show that apartments that never get sunlight, the people are more depressed. Yeah. Th those, those kind of things. So that's, it's impacting your daily life all the time. All the time. <laughs> so I hear a rumor that you're, you're publishing a new monograph, uh, and I believe the title is Hillier Selected Works. Could you... Let us know about this. Well, we, uh, I've always been against doing books. But we did a book uh, 25 years ago. It was about 200 pages, and it was all of our work. Um, now, after 57 years in practice, we have over 4,000 projects that we've done. That's why it's called Selected Works. <laughs> and what we've done is um, basically kept to the 20 projects done in the last 25 years. Um, one thing that we did, which a lot of people don't know about, is we created the idea of a corporate campus, and we did that with the beneficial project in Gladstone PPAC. And that became a model for so many corporate headquarters because it had the flexibility for the f business to grow or shrink. Um, and for everybody to still feel comfortable in it. 
and it was a set of small buildings connected rather than mm. one gigantic, uh, as one of my clients called it, a corporate aircraft carrier, <laughs> which AT&T was building at the time. And um, so those, as a result of that, we've done over 80 corporate headquarters around the world. And people don't really know that, but that's we build a huge practice in just doing corporate work. Right. So I guess the whole idea of having the several smaller buildings, if you do need to scale back, then it's easy to say. Uh, that's it's right. It's not so obvious that yeah. we gave up that space to somebody else. Yeah. Or, so anyway, to answer your question, uh, with 4,000 4, projects yeah. behind us, we decided to select a few of the best and put them in there. Right. So when does this... When, when, when is this coming out? It's coming out in um, October um, 23rd. We're having a reunion. We have over 1,500 alumni, uh, former employees, and we're inviting them all back for a reunion at uh, Hillier College of Architecture at NGIT yeah. and um, for a great big party. And we're going to hand out the book to all of them when they come wow. back. Very nice. So, um, so, Bob, I think the current firm you have is actually your your second firm. That's correct. Yeah. So, can you? So, what are the differences between today's firm and the the firm that you had before? The firm I had before, we had five hundred employees, and we were doing projects all over the world and all over the country. We have projects in twenty seven states and thirty four foreign countries. And I didn't know half of those projects. I knew who the clients were, and in most cases I knew the clients, but I wasn't really doing uh, architecture. And so we sold the firm and merged with a firm in Scotland and became, we were the third largest firm in the country, and then we became the third largest architectural firm in the world with the merger with RMJM. And um, Barbara and I finished up, I finished up Princeton Hospital and she finished up the Irving Convention Center. And then we left and we had a two-year non-compete. And at that point, I realized I was missing doing architecture. Sure. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do architecture where I can really work with the clients and really design for the clients the way I did when I first started out. Uh, I started out all by myself. And and so that's the most rewarding part of being an architect is helping people solve these space problems. And so um, I wanted to get back to that. Barbara wanted to get back to it. And so we started Studio Hillier as kind of the rebirth of the Hillier group. Right, <laughs> yeah. It's a great story. Um, so, Bob, is there an ideal client? Um, yes, there's an ideal client. We're still looking for them. <laughs> uh, no, I, it, the ideal client is one who really is interested in the architecture and one that has a reasonable budget but does have a budget. We've, we've had some really difficult clients where they said, oh, I can pay for anything. And then the bills started to come in, and all of a sudden, they couldn't pay for everything. Yeah. And that, those became really unfortunate client experiences. We, we have a track record of never having a client 
sue us. Um, whenever we've had a mistake, and it's called the errors and omissions, yeah. and we have insurance for it, but whenever we've had a mistake, we've jumped right in and solved the problem with the client, uh, and they never had to call a lawyer. So we're very, very, very proud of that. And from a practical side, that's um, that's one of the uh, the things at, about dealing with clients is you never you never it's a mea culpa if you if you've done something wrong the sooner you own up to it yeah uh the better it's going to be yeah it's just yeah that's and, and we find when we've done that clients have been extremely gracious and they've even helped pick up the bill for the damage yeah so yeah i think in so many areas of life if, if something goes wrong just face it right away just yes. say let's just figure it out yeah, get rid of it just get rid of it yeah. don't worry about who to blame let's just how do we get by it um, all right, you you had mentioned NJIT earlier, um, and also I think it would be nice to explain how the NJIT's uh, College of Architecture and Design was renamed. You mentioned the name, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that, how it happened, and your involvement there. Um, I designed the very first School of Architecture for NJIT uh, 50 years ago, <laughs> and it was a gymnasium on top of one of their old classroom buildings it's, you know it's right in the middle of newark and and they said um turn this into an architecture school and then the school took off and it grew and they called me back about five years later and said well we want to move part of it downstairs and so we renovated it and then 15 years after that they said we now want to build a new building and they hired us to do that and uh, so we did that, and they had given my father, uh, who developed the first operating electron microscope in the world, they'd given him an honorary degree. And the next thing I knew, they were giving me an honorary degree. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so um, then it came time, um, th they wanted the school... The school was having some difficulties and they wanted the school to kind of get a new life. And so they approached me about the possibility of a gift. And so Barbara and I talked about it and we, we gave them a substantial uh, gift. Um, it's an annuity type of thing where we, we still get an income, but they, they have the gift. And uh, they, instead of calling it the School of Architecture, they named it the College of Architecture and Design. And what's interesting is the design part is computer design, which is now becoming a very important uh, course. And, um, and it's also interior design and graphic design and interior design. So you have all of those design skills mm -hmm. on top of the architectural. Since they renamed the school, and what was wonderful is they named it after me and Barbara, and uh, it's called the J. Robert and Barbara A. Hillier College of Architecture and Design. It's a real tongue twister. But anyway, they, since they renamed it in the last four years, the enrollment has gone up from um, 600 to almost 1,000 now. And they're now talking about expanding the building <laughs> uh, because the school's gotten so successful. The beauty of NGIT is that it is a school where it's the number one school where your income is 
a, a major, such a major improvement once you're 30 years old. In other words, these are kids that are coming out of Newark or out of New Jersey, not with a lot of money. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a state college, and um, so the tuitions aren't huge, and a lot of them are day students. But once they go out with a degree, they make more money for somebody their age than anybody else around them. And that's a wonderful way. And, and, and we just felt that was so important. And so we're, we're excited about it. And I can tell you this, the students come, I teach at Princeton, I teach in the architecture school there. And I can tell you that the students coming out of NGIT are awfully good at putting buildings together. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, because it's got more of an engineering bent. It's a different school than Princeton. The missions are different, but in fact, um, they are really good architects, and I have four of them working for me. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. That's a good testament. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, do you have a favorite type of project to work on? It's funny you ask that. Uh, my favorite project is a custom home. Really? And I love doing custom homes. And it, it, I didn't mention this, but when, even when we had the big firm and there was stuff going on that I would look at it and say, yeah, that design looks okay. Um, and, and that was about the extent of my design part of all every year I would still design one custom home and I have 98 custom homes in Princeton believe it or not and um, it's they were just a thrill to do and I did them all on the weekends and evenings <laughs> when I it didn't interrupt my business and then I had a good architect working for me doing all the technical stuff sure but I was in constant contact with the clients I just found that was really exciting and some of them have become life lifetime friends well I guess if they're your your if they are your friends they must have liked the house yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a a top five most proud of project list you know that's a hard one but I can tell you them because they were really important one was the, um, the beneficial headquarters in Gladstone Peatpack. We did that for Finn Casperson. Um, and it was a thrill because it was the first campus. And he said, 58% of my employees are women. And I want a building that women are going to feel comfortable in. Hmm. Really important. And he said he didn't want the corporate aircraft carrier. He was yeah. the guy that referred to that. And so... I uh, we did that campus and um, it just became a hallmark for corporate campuses. Um, the second one is um, is the corporate headquarters that we did for GlaxoSmithKline, which is in London. It's a million square foot building, almost nine hundred thousand, and um, it's modeled after a, 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 a London street. Same proportion, mm -hmm. five stories high, 50 feet wide. Yep. And on the first floor are barbershops, uh, travel agents, a library, four restaurants, uh, fast food and elegant food, um, a, um, a bank, an insurance agent, all of those things that employees need. And, um, and the, the HR president, 
called our vice president called me about two months after they'd moved in they had just merged we did the building for smith klein beecham and then they merged with glaxo and he said bob you've got to know something that atrium street at the bottom of this building has become something that is just melted the two companies together and he said where most mergers you hear we they yeah he said we don't hear that around here because everybody knows everybody now because they're mixing it up yeah. you know 15,000 employees in that one building so and then uh, the Sprint headquarters in um, Rolling Park uh, Kansas is a um, the biggest uh, it's 5 million square feet of office space in the campus mode 15 buildings and 15 parking garages but the built campus itself is walkable. It has its own um, um, zip code. <laughs> and then um, the, the next one I'm most proud of is Bryant University. We, um, it was Tupper, Tupperware. It was Tupper's farm, and he gave it to Bryant as a donation. And Brown University bought the Bryant campus and we had 22 months in which to design and get built an entire campus um, for th at that point 3,000 students and um, it was just it was a thrill to do that that was our first really big job I'd only been in practice seven years and um, that was a big one and I think the other f favorite ones are the campus at Lawrenceville, we've done more buildings there than any architect. And the campus at Petty, where we've work, been working for 40 years. Um, and Finn Casperson introduced us um, introduced us to uh, Petty, actually. And um, so that's, that's how, those are my five favorite projects. There you go. Quite a career so far, Bob. Yeah, so far. So far. It's still going. <laughs> it is still going. Now our, my favorite project is what we're doing on Witherspoon Street. Right. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? It, uh, what we're doing is Princeton has become so expensive that anybody making 50000 a year can't live here. Yeah. And so we're doing um, housing for the middle, the missing middle, as we call it the people who are essential to having a good town, like librarians, teachers, yeah. firemen, policemen. We want to house them. And the way to do it is to increase the density um, and do it with smaller apartments. Because when you're downtown and you can walk every place, and Witherspoon Street is beautiful because it's, it's n nicely scaled as a residential community, it's five-minute walkable to the library, to all the churches, um, to the campus, to the YMCA. And um, the only thing that it isn't walkable to is, uh, is Princeton Shopping Center. But there are people that do that walk, too, or yeah. bike it. Yeah. And we're providing uh, 70 new apartments on Witherspoon Street. Um, and I say 70, there are, we actually have 36 already, but we're taking them apart and putting them back together in a different format. And then we're adding another 35 new ones. And they are all smaller, but they are beautiful apartments with lots of daylight and 
lots of amenities. And of course, the biggest amenity is being in Princeton. Yeah. So that's, um, that's what we're doing. And we're doing the same kind of project in New Hope. Um, also, on, and the challenge here is that we're in a historic district. And in New Hope, we're working on a historic site and, and putting in 29 condominiums. But in Pennsylvania, you don't have the affordable housing requirement, et cetera. I should mention that 20, uh, 20% or 14 of the 70 new apartments are affordable. Right. So 56 market units and uh, uh, 14 affordables. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear you're helping to address the, the missing middle housing problem because yeah. that's a huge problem. In it, it is a big problem. And, and I think because of you and the council, it, you know, that... That issue is getting addressed. Yeah, trying to. In big time. Yeah. And and speaking of projects, I'm proud of one of them is Copperwood, which was mm-hmm. the first really major apartment project in Princeton since Palmer Square. Yeah. And um, it's been a great success. We built it, developed it. And that's another thing I didn't mention is that half of our practice now is just designing our own projects that we're the developer on, such as Witherspoon Street and such as the project in New Hope. And we were the developers, builders, et cetera, of Copperwood. Um, And we managed it for 10 years and we just sold it. So, Bob, I want to thank you very much for finding time to join us today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for the 40th episode of the Princeton Podcast produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends. Visit our website at princetonpodcast.com and be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts.